Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Trying to live to other people's standards doesn't work. You have to live your own life. Today, we're talking to Haradna about toxic South Asian culture, mental health, and being comfortable in your own skin. Aradhana, welcome. How's everything going today? Good. I'm like really anxious. I haven't done a podcasting guest for like two years. Really? Yeah. I am actually curious what got you to reach out to my show. So Dear Sis, she's the host of Dear Sis. She was telling me about you and she was like, you guys should connect. Aw, I have to thank her. That's so cool. Prior to this, I was doing a mental health slash lifestyle type of thing with my best friend but it wasn't working out with our schedules and we have different like passions we're still together but we're split up too so now we have our own brands but we have a brand together too that's cool yeah Yeah, so how long have you been creating content like I feel like that's kind of your thing I would say three years now but I've been by myself since July or June of this year and how do you feel about that? I like it better doing it by myself. I feel more confident. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I actually started when I got into creating content like online, I started, I feel like collaborating with other people just like we're doing right now. But yeah, it is interesting when you do it yourself versus with someone else. Yeah. Cause it's like, you have to merge two ideas together and then it's like, well, this isn't working with my idea and my vision. <laughs> so- Right, right. Like there's a lot more freedom in doing it yourself. Yeah. Okay. So I actually have like a bunch of questions. My editor gave me these. I'd love to start there and then we'll see where the conversation goes. For sure. Okay. Let's start at the beginning. Why are girls and women seen as less valued in the Indian culture? From my upbringing, it seems like a woman is just a baby maker, a built-in maid that's free of charge. And someone that's not valued, even though men come from women, they're not valued. So I think in the Indian culture, it it has changed drastically. I will say that, that women are getting more respect. Women are getting educated. They're going out there, making a name for themselves, not getting married at 18 years old. But still you see that subtle, like, but you should know how to cook and clean. You should have a baby by now. Like those should be priorities. Your husband's responsible to have the career, the success, the glory, not the daughter or the wife. Yeah. Do you feel pressure from that? I do because I am the first woman in my family to be educated, not only just to graduate high school, but to get a bachelor's and a master's degree. Yeah. So I'm super That's amazing. Excited. Yes. And I am marrying into a family that it's a very similar narrative where women aren't typically educated. Some of them do have a college education, but for the most part, it's just high school and that's it. 
they haven't gone on to higher education, such as a master's or a PhD. What made you want to do that? So I was really bad at school growing up, like really bad. I graduated with a 1.2 GPA in high school, barely graduated high school, went to community college trying to figure out like what in the world am I going to do with my life? Because I was told I wasn't going to be able to do anything. I was just going to work at a department store or a fast food joint because I was really bad at every subject. And when I went to college, I took psychology one where my teacher's like, you have anxiety. Like you're not distracted. You're not a crybaby. You're not overly emotional. You're not disinterested. You have a cloud in your head that's constantly saying, me, 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 me. Pay attention to me. Don't pay attention to anything else. That's kind of when I started learning about anxiety. And I was like, dang, I'm really good at this. Like I was able to pick up stuff from the DSM. I was able to diagnose. And so I learned, I was like, I'm really good at this. So I'm going to major in psychology. So I majored in psychology, wanting to become a psychiatrist. But then that meant math and science, which I'm not very good at. So I was like, here we go again. I'm not good enough. I'm not going to make it. And then my psychology teacher is like, you actually would make a very good therapist. You have a way with talking to people, making them feel comfortable, and then being a, someone with anxiety who didn't even know they had anxiety for so long. You can bring that experience with you as a therapist. So I wanted to become a psychologist. I shadowed a bunch of psychologists and found out I don't like doing assessments. Did not like writing no, notes or assessments or anything. So I was like, can't be a psychologist. I looked at MFT. I felt like I didn't really enjoy the family dynamic aspect of it. I'm more of like one-on-one, -on -one, let's figure out how everyone else fits into your puzzle. So I accidentally started shadowing a social worker and they showed me like, hey, you can do assessments, you can do therapy, you can run groups, you can develop programs, like there's so much you can do with a social work degree. So that's how I became a social worker. And I recently just got licensed too. Ooh, congratulations. Thank you. So you do feel like you've kind of, you know, found your calling. I do. And I think being able, because I've always wanted to be a Bollywood actress. And so that was not going to happen. <laughs> So I was told at a very young age, you're not doing that. So being able to not only merge my master's degree with, you know, essentially doing reels and like comedy and everything, I think I found my calling where I'm able to mesh the two without disappointing anybody. I love that. Why can't you be a Bollywood actress? I mean, there's time for that. I think it was more of like the family name, like no one in our family has ever really gone into entertainment and being one of two girls, it was pressure, like, oh, we got to get this one to become educated. So <laughs> that's how it kind of worked out. But I'm kind of glad I didn't do Bollywood just because I would have missed out on learning who I was as a therapist and the powers that I have to help people struggling with mental illness. I love that. Okay, I'm going to go back to these questions because I feel like they're going along with what you're saying. Okay. It says, there's an element of control of girls by their parents where the expectation is to be home all the time and do the chores and stay home until you're married and then they can leave. You kind of touched on that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like beauty standards in Indian culture and colorism? Oh my gosh, yes. This is a big trigger topic for me. <laughs> So I am dark skin, as you can see. And growing up, I actually had darker skin because I would play in the sun and I would tan easily. And, you know, a little kid doesn't understand that, oh, I should probably cover myself up and not get dark and play in the shade. You know, if everybody's in the playground, I'm going to go to the playground too. So I would get 
dark very quickly and you know the aunties and uncles that's what we call the elders in the Indian community would be like your daughter's so dark who's gonna marry her you know she's so ugly she's not pretty and beauty is defined by the lighter the skin the more prettier you are and obviously I'm not light skin and it was a struggle of why am I not light skin? You know, why am I ugly? Why am I dark skin? You know, biology was not really explained to me at that point growing up. And then when I went to biology, I kind of understood. I was like, oh, it's the genes. Because so my mom is lighter skin and my dad's darker skin. And I was like, so I'm milk chocolate. Like, that's why I have the skin tone. And I would explain that to the aunties and uncles. And they're like, no, like my daughter over here is like light. And look at me, like I'm dark tone and the father's dark tone, but she's light. I come to find out there is a rite of passage in the Indian culture. Once you hit around 10, 11, you start bleaching your skin and lightening your skin. Yeah. Before you're even allowed to do hair removal, you are bleaching your skin, lightening your skin. And I have had my skin bleached. It was traumatic. I have eczema. So that's how we found out I had eczema because I like blew up with all these rashes. So that never happened again. But I have a lot of my Indian friends who, if you look at our childhood pictures, were all, you know, dusky, dark color. And you see them now and they're white, like because they bleached, like they call it the Michael Jackson effect because I guess Michael Jackson did the same thing, but yeah. So it's, it's very common. If you're dark, you can't marry a handsome man. My fiance is dark skin. He and I actually have the same complexion. So I'm like, this works out. <laughs> to stay in the sun, look darker than me, then we'll be good. But he, he also has a similar concept. Like his, all of his siblings are all light skin. He's the only one that's dark. And it just worked out like that genetically that he's darker skin. So, but he also deals with the same colorism, like, well, who's going to marry you? No white girl is going to marry you, like light skin girl. So I was like, you know what? We'll just roll together as brownies here. Oh my God. Wow. I cannot believe that starts happening at such a young age. Like you're still really a kid. It doesn't number on your self-esteem and your self-worth. Like I still don't think I'm pretty enough. Like I'm obsessed with skincare, like to the extent, like I'm putting on like 60, 70 products on my face because I'm trying to keep maintain this the standard of beauty that society has placed on me. Oftentimes I look at myself and I'm like, oh, I'm not pretty enough. Like look at like Priyanka Chopra, like Priyanka Chopra actually is dark, but <laughs> she's lightened her skin. If you look at her original pictures, she was kind of my skin tone. So we see these Bollywood actors also who come in dark, winning Miss India, Miss Universe, and then go on to Bollywood and they're like, oh, we need to lighten your skin. We need to fix your nose. We need to do this. We need to do that. And so the standard of South Asian beauty is perfection. But this perfection is not obtained by birth. It's obtained by secondary options like surgery, bleaching, you know, starving yourself. So it's a lot like there's very self-esteem, self-worth is very low in the South Asian culture, but we're, we're taught to put this mask on to show, oh, I'm good, I'm perfect, I got this. So as adults, we struggle. We struggle with understanding, like, am I happy with who I am? Am I happy with the skin tone? Am I happy with where I'm at in my life? That is really hard. And how does that also play into the caste system? So I'm not really raised in the caste system. That wasn't really brought to me. I was just told you have to marry an Indian guy. So that was the only requirement for me. But I have a lot of friends that were. And so there's a caste system in the Hindu culture and the Sikh culture. That's the only two I kind of know. And I have friends who are Brahmin, which is like the royal aspect. And they can't marry someone below their caste. 
and they would like run away and get married. And even though they were both Indian, and I would tell the parents, I'd be like, Auntie Uncle, he's Indian. We were born and raised in Cali. Like, let's just be grateful that they found an Indian guy. Like, why does it matter what caste they're from? But these people are very like, oh no, like we come from a dynasty of, you know, Patels or Shahs or Theosais or Gills. And it's the same thing in Sikhism. There's like the Juts and then there's like other ones I can't think of. And it's very similar that, oh, but you have to marry your own kind, which is, I haven't dealt with that so much. I know a little bit about it, but I have friends in dance class and just in general that have had to deal with it. I, I feel like there's similarities, honestly, between the Jewish community and the Indian community. Like every time I hear people talking about matchmaking and you know, yeah. having to marry somebody within your community and all of that. That's really interesting. Did you watch the show Indian Matchmaking? Yes, I did. I honestly, that is not what happens in today's era. Like, I don't know why she, this show doesn't perceive the Indian culture very in a good light, I would say, because interesting. like, for the most most, most Indian kids actually find their own spouse. They don't really need a matchmaker. And the ones that are older, you'll see, like, for the most part, they're all very well settled in their careers. And so I think, what she fails to show on the show, like Simanti, is these people are well settled. They chose their career, their goals and aspirations over getting married at 18 years old. And now their parents are like, okay, TikTok, TikTok, you know, your ovaries. And they're trying to rush them to get married. But that's actually not true in the Indian culture. There's a lot of Indian women and men who get married in their 40s. A big thing is egg freezing that I guess has become acceptable in the Indian culture now. But yeah, that show, I was like, this is not what we really do. And even the parents, like some of the parents were way too modern. I was like, no, Indian parents aren't like this. Like they will not let you go on dates like that and be like, oh yes, bye. Like, you know, <laughs> see you later. What is it really like? Yeah, like how did your parents Oh no, fit into... like my parents, I wasn't allowed to, I wasn't allowed to date at all. So I met my fiance when I was 19 during a dance competition. He was in the audience and I was competing. And then we became friends and then we ended up going to the same school. And then we kind of started dating and like we told our parents once we graduated with our bachelor's that we wanted to get married. But they were like, no, like you guys need to kind of find a job, make a life for yourself as an independent person. So I went on and got my master's and then he went on to kind of focus on his career in finance. And then once I, got, now that I'm licensed, I was like, okay, now we can get married. <laughs> I've got my aspirations done. But still very young. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, we're considered ancient now. I'm 32. He's 35. That's not ancient, but wow. Yeah. How old were you when you got married? I'm not married yet. I'm engaged. Oh, I thought you were. No, 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 not yet. We're hoping next year with COVID things kind of got dampened. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I'm considered ancient, apparently. <laughs> I think you still have some time left. Okay. Let's talk about expectations on girls versus boys. Mm -hmm. It's very different. You'll see guys have so much more freedom, so much more room to grow as individuals. If a man comes to you and says, you know, I'm just not doing well, I have anxiety, it'd be like, oh my God, beta, like they call him like son or daughter. Like, oh my God, let's get you, you know, a doctor, let's get you prepared, blah, 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 blah. Whereas the daughter is like, go do your work, stop acting, you're just faking it. 
yeah so and another thing is is like let's say a son screws up like he gets arrested or he brings tarnish to the family name it's like oh no no it's someone else's fault but if the daughter doesn't pass a class or doesn't know how to cook and clean she's bringing tarnish to the name and it's like oh my god you're just disgrace to the family you're an embarrassment like honestly we feel like cattle we're just getting trained to be wives from the moment we're born that's literally what a, a girl is in the family is this is my possession that i'm selling to the next buyer i'm going to train you and off you go like a show horse that's pretty much what we are we're show horses and so the pressure that women have that people don't acknowledge is we always have to be perfect we always have to be mindful oh shoot like if i do this like and someone finds out and tells my parents like it's going to bring shame to the family name even though the expectation is once a, mar a woman marries we change our last name to her husband's last name so not only am i still continuing bearing that weight from my you know, my dad's name, but I'm also now bearing my husband's last name too and making sure I'm not bringing, you know, disgrace and dishonor to the family name. Whereas guys only have to worry about their father's last name. And even then it's always someone else's fault. How have you found your voice and become independent of that? Honestly, because people wrote me off as a failure that I wasn't going to amount to anything. Nobody really paid attention to me. So I was always on the shadow and I would just watch other people. Like if you see my friends growing up from dance class, they're all doctors, doctors, dentists, and pharmacists or engineers. Some of them are engineers. Now. I'm the only one that really didn't do the typical Indian culture job, but I'm also the most, I would say mentally satisfied because I do know what I like, what I don't like. I, I know I'm not perfect. I don't, I, I've, yes, I obtained a 4.0 GPA in grad school, but I've never really been like, oh my God, like I didn't get an A in this class. Like I'm going to die. Like I'm barely like, eh, whatever. Like <laughs> it doesn't matter anyway. I think my voice also comes from because I've been pushed down so much and told I'm not enough and that I'm not going to make up to be anything. That I am in this mission to prove that I can be something and that I may be broken and have scars, but I'm equally or more, I guess, capable of being something and someone in this world. That is so beautiful. I absolutely love that. Do you feel like your your parents have had your back or been a part of that? Yeah, because again, it goes back to the family name. So I'm the oldest child. And so, you know, if the oldest child is screwed, the rest of them are probably screwed too, right? So they tried really hard to figure out how to make me successful, right? Like to bring honor to the family name. And it took me becoming on my own, you know, going back to the question of like women not allowed to move out. I did move out in college. I went out north to go to school and I learned to be independent more. I learned who I was as a person. And then in grad school, I moved out again too and learned to be a person too and who I like, who I didn't like, all that jazz. And they kind of learned that this is who she is. And now all these aunties and uncles are like, oh, you're so lucky your daughter really doesn't do the things that our daughters do and sons do. And she doesn't bring disgrace to the name because she She's kind of just her own little thing like she goes to the mall she goes to the library she like she does her own little thing so i think a lot of people who were taunting me growing up are now like i wish my kid was like your kid that must feel good it does but also <laughs> at the same time i'm like why is your kid the way they are today because of the pressures you put because Ooh. the mindset you put of perfectionism showing no no weakness now they don't know how to show that whereas from the get-go i have been broken as they say i've been a crybaby i've been weak and so for me it's easy to cry it's easy for me to be like i'm not doing well like this is giving me anxiety for them it's hard to do that because they've been taught 
I was never taught that because nobody knew how to control it. Like think of a pipe with all the water bursting out, like nobody could ever close it together. There was always water bursting out of me. So I've learned to kind of just like, this is who I am, take it or leave it. Wow. How do you think we break generational trauma? I am trying to do that with my platform and it's it's a battle. Like I get a lot of hate messages, surprisingly, from the Indian community all the time. They're like, you're a disgrace. How dare you say this? Like, you know, not everyone's like this. I'm sure I'll get hate for speaking out in this platform because they're going to say not every Indian family is like this and blah, blah, blah. But the truth is we are taught to wear a mask. We are taught to live in a glass house and this glass house needs to be sparkly clean all day, every day not a smudge should be showing. And it's hard to break it because you've lived in it. And to break it, that means you have to stop, slam the brakes and say, okay, this is wrong. How am I going to undo this? How am I going to change it? I'm going to change this narrative for the next generation. And it's hard to do because I I still do it. Like my fiance is actually in school right now. And I'm like, make sure you get straight A's. I don't want to see it. Straight A's. And he's like, wow, like you didn't even get straight A's. (laughs) In grad school, I did, but like he's like, you have that Indian mentality though. Make sure it's perfection. Make sure it's like done correctly the first time. No mistakes, no blemishes. And I catch myself a lot. I do it at work all the time. Like working with my patients, I was like, you got to get this together, get it together, get it together. Like, and they're like, but I can't. And I'm like, oh my god, this Indian mentality is there of perfectionism, of not showing that oopsie I screwed up or oopsie there's a crack or a dent. Wow. That's really hard too. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. Like I know there's a lot of Indian traditions and like superstitions and all of that. How does that play into things? Yeah. So one thing they do is when you get married, they look at your horoscope and then they make sure the stars and the moon and the solar system all align and you can't get married unless that happens. So we're dealing with that right now. making sure the solar system aligns but there is like they have like oh if you were born on this month then you have to marry someone at this month and like there's a lot of superstitions like you can't wear white at a wedding you have to wear black because white is what a widow wears in the Indian culture you can't keep your hair down because a spirit can possess you especially if you have black hair so there's a lot of superstitions and that like some of them you know I'm like yeah and some of them like I'm like yes like I'm a big believer like spirits like I can feel them I know people laugh about this but I'm like I can feel someone's here like someone is trying to talk to us but that's something that I was taught from the Indian culture like that some people's souls still stay and they try to talk to people to help them who were you named for and do you feel like anybody's helped you I will say like I do believe there is a spirit like from a very young age, I've noticed it. Like I was like, it feels like someone's there. Like I'm never alone. I feel like this may just because I was raised by helicopter parents and I'm like, oh, someone's always there. But I do feel like there is, and there are times when like, I'll tell like my fiance, I'll be like, you know, I feel like someone's here watching me at all times. My name actually means like candle. Like it's a actual ritual they do in Indian culture. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if someone's trying to talk to me. Can you tell me about that ritual? Yeah. So if you look it up, it's usually like a candle, like a homemade candle that they make. And then they light it and then they do it in like a counterclockwise circle. And it's just kind of like to show to the gods that, hey, I'm here. I'm surrendering to you. You know, please help me. And just like a a ritual that people do every day. Every day? Yeah, it's not that long. It doesn't take that long. It's like probably two, three minutes. Okay. Do you have any other like everyday practices? Yeah. So some people read like ritual scripture 
before they start their day. So they wake up at 5 a.m. and they read the, the scripture and then they shower themselves. Like we're, we have to shower before we can go to temple or even touch like any religious items. If you're on your menstrual cycle, you can't touch or even go to a religious place. If you're pregnant, you can't look at a solar eclipse. Like women aren't allowed to see watch solar eclipse because that's you can become infertile if you see a solar eclipse, which here in California, there's been a bunch lately. So it's like hard not to, but there's just a lot of like little rituals that you like see. And some of them, I think because they're so normal to me, I don't ever really bring them up to anybody until someone's like, that's not normal. You know that, right? Like, that's interesting about the menstrual cycle thing. Cause that also relates to Judaism where really, yeah. I mean, you can't be together when you're on your menstrual cycle and then you have to be, I mean, if you're observant, and then, you know, you have to wait a week even after. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Are there any rules around that? <laughs> no, there's no rules on that. I know in India, some parts of like rural India, the woman can't cook. She can't enter the kitchen and she can't eat with anybody else. She has to be separated. Interesting. But I think that's like the villages, like not modernized areas. Wow. Yeah. I've never had to experience that. So it's kind of on okay. your period. We call it a day. <laughs> to also, stay you grew up in the States, right? Yeah, California. Do you still have family abroad? I do. Yeah, I do. I've gone to India a few times. The last time I went, I was 17. No, no, no. I was 14. I was 14 last time I went. It was such a culture shock because that's probably the only trip I really remember. But I, I just saw how they would treat women, how, you know, guys would catcall and it was just okay. And like, it was just weird. Like people would come up to you and hug you and touch you. And it was just wait. It, it was overload for someone coming from a culture where there's personal space, there's boundaries. You don't catcall. The cops could arrest you for that. Like, you know, there's so much more structure here compared to in India. Yeah. And oh my God, like, it seems like you are kind of following somewhat mm -hmm. what your parents want you to do. Yeah. Which is a choice. Are there yeah. things that you've decided don't work for you? Yeah. So I'm marrying a guy that's not Hindu. He's sick. So we're two different religions too. And he was, half of his life was in India. Half of his life was here. So he does have some tendencies, like Indian tendencies that I'm not a big fan of. And so like some of the things they're very like, not frugal, but like, you know, tissues, they save every single tissue. And I'm like, just throw it away. Like, just I think for me, I'm not going to bring the whole nosiness. That's a big thing in the Indian culture, the nosiness. I am nosy, but I'm not nosy in the sense of like, oh, let me go tell the next person. I'm more so like, oh, so you're struggling. Let me help you. Like, so I will not bring Indian culture food. I hate Indian food. Hate it, hate it, hate it. I hate it. And my fiance doesn't like it either, so it works out. And I also, the whole concept of a woman being cattle or like a show horse, I don't know how to cook or clean really anything. I don't know how to do anything that an Indian woman should know at this point. And that's something I want to continue, not because, you know, we should know how to do that, but I want it to be where, yeah, if I have a son, I want him to learn too. And be like, you need to learn how to cook and clean too, because you're going to live on your own and you're going to have a wife. And that's not fair because she's going to have a career too. I actually love that. Did you put that on your bio data or whatever? No. <laughs> you didn't do the bio data or the resume dating. Like you did the No, no, no. We met, we met in my dance competition and then that's that's it I don't I don't get this online dating I don't get any 
I don't understand the whole Indian matchmaker situation either. How common is that really? I mean, and do you think that that's more in India versus here? Yeah, that's why it didn't work. If you see the marriages that were done in India were more successful than the ones done here, because culturally, women here are a lot more independent. And we have a right to, because I mean, if you've seen the show, you know, she asks you, okay, so what are your criteria, right? And then she kind of, her one thing was, oh, you have to compromise. You have to, she never tells the guy that they have to compromise. She always tells the women that they have to compromise. And typically the girls that are with the, you know, sticky criteria or strict criteria are the ones born and raised here. Whereas the girls back in India were never, they're like, oh, I don't care, whatever. Like long as he has money and I can live at home comfortably, that's fine. So it's very common in India. Here, not so much because it's not successful because of how we're independent. And even guys here, like they expect the woman to have an education and have a job. That's another reason why it doesn't work here outside of India. Interesting. Okay. So you did mention that you and your husband like have two different religions. Like what are the major differences there and are there commonalities? Yeah. So there's the big difference is we worship deities and they worship gurus. So these are actually human beings that kind of develop the religion and then they worship the, the scripture and they follow a teaching because six means like to learn or to teach. That's one of the main differences. They also like they have like they wear turbans and they throw their hair out. They never cut their hair. Whereas in the Hindu culture, you're supposed to cut your hair within your first year of life because that's like your old sins that you have. So you're trying to like take get rid of your old sins from your previous life. So they speak two different languages. Punjabis are mostly farmers, whereas the Gujaratis, which is what I am, are more business owners. I really don't see the difference just because we're both not that religious. Like okay. it doesn't really impact us. But the big one is that who we worship. And also, the like he has long hair. So is he holding on to his sins? He doesn't. Oh. He doesn't have, no, he cuts his hair. I've never heard that. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, you see them a lot. So what the, the Indian joke is, the ones that own the 7-Eleven, the gas stations are Punjabi Sikhs, and the ones that own the motels are the Gujaratis. Oh my God, that's so funny. Are there any other like misconceptions or like stereotypes that annoy you? Yes. So my big one is people say we don't use deodorant. That is actually true. Indian people don't use deodorant. But the ones that are born outside of India, we do. I assure you, people, we use it. But we sweat like no other. I don't even know. Another thing is threading. I know threading's become really big now in the non-Indian culture. And I love when people tell me that it hurts so much. I'm like, girl, try to do this every three weeks. I grow, I'm like a bear by three weeks. Like try doing it every three weeks. Try keeping your face intact like and be like hey you know my face is sore but I have all my makeup on right now so threading I love when people complain about threading I'm like don't complain you have to do it every what three months I have to do it every three weeks oh my Um, god if I had to do it every three weeks I think I would want to learn how to do it myself I I tried to do it myself I'm like sitting there like ow ow it's just it's quicker if they do it right right it's hard and you can go to like an Indian market to give you a big discount too so because you're there every three weeks so they're like oh she'll be here in three weeks that's cool yeah what else? Also, like, I know in The Simpsons, they had Apu, who was the Indian 7-Eleven owner, I guess. I think people were very offended by that character. But I'll tell you, as an Indian, he was not offensive. I think it was portrayed 
accurately, it's very true. They do find a wife in India. They do have hundreds of kids. They do own convenience stores. That's a reality. And they are very friendly. You know, if you ever go to a 7-Eleven owned by an Indian person, they're like, hi, like, what's your name? Like, you know, where are you from? What are you studying? Like, they're very, they're not nosy. They're just really friendly people. And typically they're immigrants and they're just trying to learn the culture. But I remember that was a big thing a few years ago that, oh, that's so offensive towards Indian people. And I was like, it's not. That's literally what they're like. They usually have that accent. They have a wife. They have thousands of kids. They befriend their customers. What do you think parenthood is going to be like or marriage is going to be like? Oh, God. It's going to be a struggle just because we do come from very different upbringings. Like his, he comes from a bunch of siblings. Like he's the baby, but he has like, I think, five or six siblings before him. And then I'm the oldest and I come from, I have another sibling. That's it. Like just the two of us. I come from a very like affectionate household. He's never seen affection. So it's very different. Yeah. And it's very like the wife cooks and cleans and kind of like, hey, you know, blah, 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 blah. We're here. It's like we're bestest of friends. Like, and everyone's in everyone's business. And it's very different. And he lives in an area where all of his family live. Like they all live on the same street, essentially. Whereas I've never been around family. My family is just my parents, my sibling and my grandparents. That's it. Have you guys talked about how that's going to work? I mean, I know you guys are like in lovebird stage, but <laughs> that does come into play. So, I mean, we've been together for like 13 years now. So we are not living on that street. <laughs> we've made that very clear <laughs> because we have a life here down because they live up north. We live down south. So we have a life here. So it's more like they stay there. We stay here. They're, they're not very nosy, intrusive much of an issue like my in-laws are super respectful and they they're supportive like they love the fact that I'm educated and career driven and all of that so they're very supportive of that wow 13 years is that abnormal as far as how long you're usually able to date before getting married no it's actually quite normal a lot of my Indian friends who did find their significant other it started like high school or right after high school they were friends and then they just stuck it out till, oh, hey, I'm done with my master's degree or, hey, I'm done with residency or whatever. It's kind of, it's really normal. It's actually abnormal to have the quick and dirty. Like we met two months ago, we're married. Like that's very weird for us. Okay. That's interesting. Cause yeah. I'm like, you're common law marriage here. Yeah. That's what people are like, you guys are already married. I was like, I feel like it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Is there any other rituals around children or the wedding that you're thinking about? Yeah. So for children, there there are a lot of rituals, but I, I've never had them done to me and he hasn't either. So I don't think we'll be doing those. But for the wedding, there's something called like a bidai, which is kind of giving away your daughter, but it's like much more amplified in the Indian culture. So once they do the wedding or whatever, at the end of the wedding, the daughter or the bride throws rice over her head and her mom pulls out her like sari, collects the rice, and it's kind of like her saying goodbye to her family. That is something I will not be doing because I was like, I'm marrying. Like, I think of it as, okay, so now I'm gaining an additional set of parents and an additional set of family. I don't see it as, oh, I'm leaving my family. So that's something I do not want to do. I'm not leaving. I'm just married. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Also, you said that you're looking into the horoscopes of you and your husband. Do you do that as far as when children come also or? Yeah, they do that. They look at like the name, like that's how they name their kids is by based on the stars and everything. But we're not going to do that. Like, I think that's ridiculous. But okay. I know people that do it for their dogs too. Interesting. Yeah, they do it with their dogs. They're like, oh, it was born on this day at this time. So we got to find a name for it. And I was like, oh my gosh, 
I want to know more about like, you told me you're a daddy's girl. Tell me more about your dad and your relationship with him. So I am a daddy's girl and he was one of the biggest like advocates when my anxiety was not named yet. I would cry. I would, you know, just lose it. And he'd be like, look, I don't know what's going on here, but we'll get through it together. You got this. You're strong. You've got this. Like, we're proud of you. Just hold on, like, we'll get there. So he was always advocating. So was my mom. Like, they both advocated for me, which was is kind of abnormal in the Indian culture. Typically, they kind of hide the disgraced child away, but they were constantly like, okay, let's put her in dance class and see if that alleviates the anxiety. Hey, let's put her in tennis. Let's, let's do this. Let's do that. Hey, we'll take her with us here. We'll befriend her with this person. So they both would advocate constantly and say, okay, we got to figure this out. What's wrong with you? Why are you so emotionally disturbed? So, but they didn't figure it out. I kind of had to figure it out on my own because I was like, this is something called anxiety. You know what though? Like the way that you described it, like that person telling you in college, like, I feel like I might've gotten offended by that. Did you feel offended by her saying this is what you have? No. So because the way I did college and grad school was I get the syllabus and I did all the homework in the first two weeks of school which is very abnormal for me because K through 12, I didn't even do any of my homework. So there was an assignment due and I was like, I don't understand the directions. And it wasn't due for like three weeks. And she was like, well, you know, we're going to talk about it on week, whatever, because that's when we learned less. I was like, I already read the whole book. I need you to explain it to me now. Like I need to do it now. I can't sleep knowing this is not done. And then she called me into office hours and she was like, have you ever heard of anxiety? And I was like, yeah, we learned about it in chapter, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, yeah, but she's like, you have it. She's like, you are constant. Cause I would zone out in class. She'd be like, you zone out a lot. And I've noticed you always sit in the same place. You always, you know, angle yourself a specific way in your desk which isn't normal typically for students, I guess, because, you know, you wiggle, you, you lay back, you like I would sit in the same position the whole time. So and then I would also ask questions that typically students didn't ask. Like, for example, I was like, oh, I have a question like, you know, what if we have to use the restroom? Like, do we raise our hand or where are the exits in the building if there's an emergency or like things like that, that she was like, typically people wouldn't think to ask, I would ask. And so she was like, I think you have anxiety, you need to see a therapist for it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that journey? My therapy? Yeah. So I briefly did it and I didn't like it at all. I felt like coming from like an an overbearing culture where everybody knows your business, everybody tells you what you can and can't do. I didn't like it at all. I took it as a learning opportunity as becoming a therapist. I was like, this is not what I'm going to do. I don't want to be that person. Like, this is what you need to do. I want to learn from the person. I want to meet the person where they're at, which is why I chose social work, because that's what social work's platform is, to meet the client where they're at, not where you want them to be at. So I felt like my journey with therapy was very hard. Like I couldn't, it it was resistance, especially once I became a therapist and I knew the ins and outs of it. So I was like, "Mm, that's not correct. Like, let me tell you how you're supposed to tell me this. And so it was very hard for me. I kind of had to do self-therapy. Interesting. And what did that look like? Well, I definitely psychoeducated myself about anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, all the treatment modalities. And I also, you know, my platform is one of the reasons why I started was it it is a self diary as well, because I literally process my feelings and emotions. And I wonder, like, for example, I'm very anxious right now. And I'm asking myself, okay, well, why are you anxious? What's going on? You're home, you're, you're safe. Like, what is anxiety causing you? Like, where is it coming from? 
I've just learned kind of to self-talk, self-soothe myself, but that also looks like I'm zoning out or I'm talking to myself. So people now think I have schizophrenia when I don't have schizophrenia, I assure you, I don't hear voices. <laughs> so it's just been kind of me trying to figure out and navigating what in the planet am I doing? Yeah. I actually love the idea of self-soothing. What does that look like? Like what kinds of grounding techniques do you use? Honestly, I, so I have done all the like, you know, five things I see, four things I hear. Like I've done all the exercises that were taught in grad school. They just don't work for me. Crying is my biggest coping skill. If I can cry it out, I'm like a little toddler who just cries and cries and then gets up and okay, I'm good. Like I'm moving on with my life. That's literally what helps me is crying because I feel like it's a sense of release for me. Like I'm releasing whatever the anxiety is. And then at the same time, I'm thinking, okay, what are we going to do after we stop crying? Like, what's the game plan? And typically I have a game plan and I feel much better afterwards. So if you see me crying, it's because I'm just processing <laughs> my anxiety. What, I mean, how do you just get yourself to cry? Maybe you are meant for Bollywood. <laughs> I, just, I started crying at work yesterday. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And then I was like, okay, we figured it out. Now I'm going to call this patient and figure it out with them. It just happens. I just start crying. Like, I'll just cry. Like, that's when I know I'm at my breaking point. If I'm crying already, I'm like, I, can't, I have to let this go. Because it's also, I'm the person that wants to hold back my tears. I don't want to cry in front of people. Because then people's like, what's wrong? Like, talk to me. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to nobody. I'm just talking to myself here, trying to figure it out. <laughs> Leave me alone. So for me, it's when I get to that point where the tears just start rolling, I was like, okay, you need to have your breakdown now and cry it out and figure it out. Also, like, I would like to know a little bit more about the difference between therapy and a social worker and how like one might work for someone better versus the other. So as a licensed therapist, I can now provide therapy. I've been doing therapy though prior to my licensure. The way therapy works is you can go to a psychologist. They do the same thing essentially, but they do more based on assessment. So you do a whole long assessment and they're like, okay, well, based on your assessment, it seems like you have depression. Whereas with social work, you come in and we're like, okay, so talk to me. What brought you in today? Oh, well, you know, I've been struggling. I've been eating so much and sleeping a lot and I feel so sad. And it's like, okay, well, let's process it. Did something happen? Like, and it's less of like question and answers and more of a conversation. So I see people going towards the social work route because they're like, I don't want to be diagnosed. There's that negative connotation of, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. And having that conversation, you also as a person figure out, you know what, I have been eating a lot lately and I have been sleeping a lot. And like when I was 14, that happened too. And then my school therapist told me I had depression. And so it's kind of teaching you to be more independent because the goal with social work is to get you to the point where you have tools in your own toolbox and then you can pull them out and be like, oh, I'm going to use this today because this is how I'm feeling. Whereas with a psychologist, I feel like oftentimes that doesn't really happen. It's more so let's talk about your feelings this week, like a venting session each week that you're paying for a very expensive one too. Yeah. And can one day a week really transform you? I don't think so. I've always worked in inpatient. So it's, I just started working outpatient and I'm seeing that once a week, it's not beneficial because everyone has different needs. Oftentimes, if you are in the, the core of your mental illness, you need someone there readily accessible. The way I explain it is you have a toolbox full of tools. You have the tools, you just don't know how to use them. So it's like, hi, I brought my toolbox. Can you help me? Like, and that's why they need to be seen more frequently. Some people are like, you know, I, I had the instructions a few years ago, but I think it's not working anymore. Can you please help me? Then it's like, okay, once a week may work for you. It just really depends where you're at and your mental illness and mentally where you are at and how much support you really need. Do you have any tips that you feel have 
helped people that you've worked with? I always tell people like mental illness looks different for everybody. Yes, there's a book that says DSM-5 and it tells you, you know, this is what anxiety looks like. This is what depression looks like. This is what an eating disorder looks like. But when each individual, it looks different, you know? There are people who you will never guess they have a mental illness because they can, they have it together. They have the tools to kind of keep it locked in, in the cage. Other people like Kanye West, where it's like, oh, well, sir, you are the poster child for bipolar disorder. <laughs> like they show it, it's out there, everyone can see it. And so I tell my patients, yes, the DSM says it's this, this, and this, but you may show it differently than the next person. Because one thing you'll I hear a lot is, oh, well, my great-grandmother had this, and she didn't act like this. And I was like, yes, but that's a different person. You're a different person. There's different stressors that you see that she didn't have, and vice versa. So mental illness looks very different. Yes, there's a criteria, but it looks different for each person, just like diabetes looks different for someone else. Another tip is it's okay to get therapy. Like You don't need to have a mental illness to get therapy. Maybe you're going through something and you need to have a non-biased person. I know a lot of people who go to therapy because they don't want to disclose things to their friends and family, and they just need to talk to somebody, somebody who's not going to repeat it back to society. You don't need to have a mental illness. You can just be like, hey, I need to process a life stressor, and I just don't want to talk to anybody that is in my inner circle. So I really think mental illness needs to be viewed as an everyday disorder, like diabetes, cholesterol, heart disease. We don't give shame for that. So don't give shame for having depression and anxiety. Also, is there pressure to go to an Indian therapist or Indian doctors or? I don't go to Indian doctors. Um, I don't trust them. <laughs> not really, because there's not that many Indian therapists. I think in the last five years, I've seen more Indian people going to therapy, like or becoming therapists, but not really. It would be helpful though. I will say this, when explaining my culture to a non-Indian person, unless they, they come from a similar upbringing or background, it is very difficult for them to understand. And the way that they provide therapy hinders the person. For example, uh, a lot of therapists tell Indian kids, oh, just move out then, like move out on your own. No, that's not how this works. Like, I don't want to move out. I want to learn to live with my parents and figure out a way to have boundaries. And so I think it would be better to go to an Indian therapist, I think, for a certain extent. But at the other end, they sometimes normalize, oh, well, that's normal. Your parents are supposed to be all up in your business. Like, you know, once you get married, you'll be fine. Like, so it's finding that healthy balance. Okay, that is really interesting. I know we're coming up on the hour, but can you talk about how you've established boundaries with your parents? And so you're still living at home and right now. Yeah. Yeah. What is that like as a, you said you're 32? Yeah. <laughs> you got to talk about that. It's not as bad as it was when I was a kid, just because I have lived on my own. They've seen that I've not died or gotten arrested. So they're like, okay, you've got your life together. You know the right and wrong. But there is still like, do you watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians or have you ever seen Keeping Up with the Kardashians? Yeah. So you know Chris Jenner and everybody's just in everyone's business and it's just normal. That's kind of how my household is. It's just like everyone's in everyone's business and it's just normal. Like, you know, everybody knows, oh, well, you know, Radna's just on her period and it's like, all right, cool. So I'll just steer clear of her this week. Like, it's just normal. For me, it's, it's just become my normal and my reality. So I don't find it difficult but you know sometimes I do want privacy and sometimes I'm like you know I just need people to leave me alone like I need my time yeah I mean how is it different than your childhood well now I can drive so I can go whenever I want so I think that's the most thing is like I do have more independence with driving so I'm able to come and go and do whatever I want 
whereas as a kid, because I, I didn't get my license until I was 18. So I was out of high school at that point. So I think that's the biggest thing is I'm able to kind of like, okay, I need to go out or, hey, I'm bored. I'm going to go out or I'm going to go hang out with a friend or whatever. So I think I have more flexibility than I did as a kid. How do you think you're going to be as a parent? That's why you asked me this because I have a few followers that asked me this two days ago and they were like, what would you be like as a mom? I'm going to try to find a healthy balance. There are some things that I want to bring in. Like I do think with the world we live in, being a helicopter parent might be beneficial to an extent, but not to the extent that it was for me, because I also want them to learn that who are you as a person? Like, what are your likes and dislikes? I want you to learn to make mistakes and be like, okay, now how am I going to get out of this unscathed? And that's something I didn't learn. I always got saved. And so when I was by myself for the first time, I was like, oh, so now what do I do? Like, I have to figure this out all by myself. Like, who do I call? Because if I tell my parents, I'll get in trouble. So I, I call that... daddy and he still saves me. And okay. I'm 43. <laughs> yeah, I get yelled at and then I get saved. <laughs> at like, least you get fine. saved. Right. Yes, that's true. I have some friends who are like, that's your problem. I, I've gotten yelled at plenty too. My dad, he can definitely put me in my place. Yes. So that's kind of what it is. It's like, well, why would you do that? And I was like, well, I don't know, but I need to figure it out now. We can talk about this later, like figure it out now. So I think that's a big thing is learning and then just learning who you are as a person because I had to wait till college to figure that out. And that was 18 years of I could have been someone in high school and middle school in elementary school and I wasn't. I was so co- like consumed by my anxiety and trying to figure out why am I not enough? Do you think there's anything that you'll never do again? Like what? I mean, did you learn any unnecessary lessons in college or? I would definitely say I would not want to make friends with everybody that I meet because I was that person. I was like a friend collector in college. Like, oh, we're friends now, we're friends now, we're friends now. And I'm like, this became way too much because either people used me or people were toxic for me. And I think learning to find out, hey, you're just a surface level friend where it's like, hey, how are you doing? You want to grab a coffee? And then there's the under the sea friends where you're like, hey, I got you. What's going on? You seem down and learning that. And that's something I do want to teach my kids. It's like, you're going to meet people and some people are going to be your surface level friends and some people are going to be your under your seat friends. So, well, I have a daughter that's entering teenagehood and (laughs) I feel like it starts there. Like you got to start learning there that lesson. Yeah, no, I think I needed, I remember because I didn't have a lot of friends. And so the people who I called friends were just people who I hung out with because we were in the same proximity. And so for me to really have a friendship was towards the end of high school, beginning of college, whereas when, when I experienced a real friendship and I was like, oh, like this is what a friendship is. Like there's no pressure. There's no like taunting or un- un- unhealthy behaviors happening here. So Yeah, I think that that's really important to pay attention to. Is mm-hmm. there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? I would. So what would he tell his younger self, a piece of advice that today he wished he had done? Yeah, I love that. I'm excited to hear what he has to say. And I hope that we can be like more than surface level friends. I have really yes. enjoyed this conversation. Yes, definitely. And I want to have you on my platform when I have my podcast up. I would be absolutely honored. Let people know how they can find your platform, support you, and give you all the likes. Yes. So I am on Instagram right now, Aradna's World. Okay. So she'll have it linked on the bottom. So I'm on Instagram, Aradna's World. I also have a mini podcast. I'm kind of trial and erroring it right now. And it's called The Not Andy. The first two episodes actually dropped today. It's a teaser. And a little bit about my platform is pretty much I am talking to my younger self and being the D, which is sister in Hindi, 
to the chutki, me, which is the younger self of me. So if you follow my Instagram, you'll see I do comedy reels. I do, my best friend has a book. She just self-published her first poetry book called Free Verses with a Dark Fate. And those poems are her journey with mental health and mental illness. She struggles with borderline personality disorder. Just, you see all of that in her poetry. So I do talk about her poetry as a social worker. I talk about mental health. I talk about my journey with mental illness. And then I make fun of the Desi community because who doesn't want to do their Indian accent? So yeah. Um, oh that's... my God, that is so good. Like, I feel like we should do like a Indian Jewish, like comedy reel or something. We should, we should definitely, we need to collab. <laughs> that would be so much fun, especially because there's so many similarities. I mean, that could seriously be funny. Yeah, and I've had, like, I have a few Jewish friends, and they've told me, like, girl, I get you. I know what your upbringing's about. And I was like, really? I didn't think anyone else would understand this. God, that's so good. I am Definitely. so glad we connected. This is so much yes. fun. Yes, 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 yes. I love it. And I, I'm so grateful that I was able to talk with you today. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Well, you had a really a revolutionary conversation with Aradhana. And really, it's not that much different. I've had talked on other episodes when you have interviewed Orthodox, very strict Orthodox Jewish groups, where we're trying very hard for everybody to live by certain standards of other people and expecting everyone to be able to live that way rather than the comfort level of the individual on what's going to make them comfortable and happy. It's almost like you're trying to get everyone to conform to a certain set of standards, whether they can do it or not. Isn't that what we're talking about? I think so. And what's interesting is that trying to measure up to other people's standards, it can be depressing. It can give you anxiety. And it also can also give you confidence issues as well. And for young ladies, as you know, America has become a very liberal country where the, the freedoms and rights of women have improved over the past decades. We are far ahead of most cultured world. But some of the old school world and old traditions is almost like a woman is a, as even she would say it, just a piece of property or a baby making machine or the pleasure of the man and not necessarily looked as as an equal person. Well, speaking of that, you were just in Israel. I sure was. <laughs> and, and in the neighborhood that I was in, every woman's heads were covered and they had dresses or skirts down to, the, to their sneakers, okay, where they're lucky they don't trip when they're walking up the hill. <laughs> but the point is, is that it's supposed to be where they're supposed to be humble and they're supposed to be servant to their man in their life and where no other man should be able to really look at them and see that there's some type of attraction. Isn't that really part of the issue? Well, it's more about what is sacred should be private instead of in America. It's more like if you've got it, flaunt it. It's more if you've got <laughs> right. it, cover it. Right. And then, of course, you know, you have some of these actresses of today where they want to be stay in the public eye and have their fan clubs. And as you know, they're they're posing half naked or see through stuff where you see see a lot of their action to keep them in mode in the spectrum of things where that they think that helps keep their popularity. Even singers are going on the stage half naked, you know. When uh, we have relatives like that in their sixties that like to wear bikinis, and those days uh, right. have come and gone. Right, but the idea is that they're showing off to stay 
relevant and it should be based on your talents and based on how you perform should be the determination of whether you're relevant still in show business, not by having to model yourself with no clothes on or see-through clothes and, or, or showing your boobs hanging out or your or your tuchas hanging out, okay? I mean, I even see when I'm at the beach here in Florida, it's got a girl wearing like a little strip to cover up and they got their buns hanging out. It doesn't matter. Everybody's just sticking it out there, okay? Hard to understand. It's just remarkable to me. I say so more power to them. Yeah, but isn't, isn't that really where we're going too far? We have to be careful that if your morality goes too far to the left, then you don't have morality. That also can destroy a society. So we want to have values and ethics, and we have to have certain restrictions in our lives so that we don't go overboard the other way. But to have people having to measure up and live by certain standards and not have the freedom of making their own choices of who they want to marry or or where they want to go to school, or what they want to study, or what they want to practice, or what they want to wear, is also going too far, don't you think? I definitely think that there should be some standards, yes. We have to not go overboard either way. And the the reason why this young lady is not a psychologist, but more of a social therapist, is because she wants to help people resolve their inner self issues, and not necessarily where she is trying to shape or form them and tell them what standards to live by. She wants them to be comfortable in their own skin. And isn't it unbelievable that she even grew up where people were telling her that she might even be too dark, where she was even bleaching herself and and she wasn't alone. There's a lot of people in order to be, they think more acceptable, bleach their skin or bleach their teeth. Pluck or, their eyebrows or, and have to color them back in their like eyebrows I did. Or even, you know, where they're taking Botox to get rid of certain wrinkles. I mean, where our physical appearance becomes really quite radical, but you have to be comfortable in your own skin. And this is what this girl is trying to say, is that she wants people to be able to find and learn and find their value, find what you're good at, and not be told if you can't do this or you can't do that, if you can't be part of this, that there's something wrong with you. It's a lot of pressure that she felt growing up. And she asked me the question, what would Wayne say to a younger Wayne or give any advice to a younger Wayne growing up that might have changed or helped him? And isn't that what she's trying to do? She's trying to be able to help people by saying and giving bits of wisdom to what their growing up pattern was, and maybe if they would have tried this or understood this better, that they would have had an easier time growing up. I think she's also really good at validating that what people are going through is a real thing. That's right. And of course, I've given you this advice that sometimes the younger Rena or the younger Wayne, sometimes we're jumping out of our skin to try to accomplish certain things, and we don't really have the patience and we get overly emotional when things don't go our way, it takes sometimes years of being able to evaluate yourself and understand that that it doesn't happen overnight, that it takes a lot of practice, a lot of learning, a lot of development, a lot of experience to really become the person that you're going to be. But the difference is, is that, at least in my case, as you've heard from me before, is that I was loved by my grandparents, my parents, friends. I, I, I always was able to get along with so many different types of people in school. And if 
people had a problem with me, I could always make new friends. And I, I moved around when I was younger. I didn't have that same stigma of having to measure up to other people's standards. But one thing but that I really love about you is that my entire life, you've always beat to your own drum. That's right. And the idea is that what other people think or say to me it has some weight, but not a determining factor where it's going to bother me one way or the other. And other people, if they say something about them, it's like the end of the world if they don't get their approval or their or their love and attention is determined by a few crazy things. You know what I mean? So uh, you're talking about self-confidence, as I brought up in the beginning of the conversation, is that there's a lot of people that need encouragement, need mentorship, need somebody there to tell them that go for it, that you can do anything and accomplish anything, and you can find your own niche in life. You just got to find it, and you just got to pursue it and keep trying until you get it. A lot of people give up. A lot of people don't have that encouragement or that mentorship that's really needed in one's development. And I had it. And a lot of people don't. So what would I say to myself? Well, you have to be patient. You'll get there. The truth of the matter is, is that it was a lot of things that I would try and I would be very good at. Things that, that I, I couldn't do. I worked hard to try to get better at and always searched out to see if I couldn't be the best at something. And that's what everyone should be doing. Remember, the pressure of winning sometimes also is very tough on a young person if they don't win or don't step up. And in my case, like I said, I, I would step up to the competition. If it was good, I played better. If it was bad, I played worse. So the truth of the matter is, is that you've got to be able to find your way of even dealing with wins and losses. And sometimes, like I said, it takes uh, really years of your own personal experiences to really be able to settle that in your own mind. I, I know it sounds a little corny, but it's that saying, never give up. You have to keep, just keep on going. You have to keep picking yourself up and stay in the race at all times. You get knocked down, you get yourself back up and you, and you, and you try again, you keep going. I think that's a, a big key to life and live by your own standards. Be able to make your own comfort level is just as important as living to somebody else's standards. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 